90% born in the church, raised in the church, saved in the church, married and buried in the church, will never share Jesus with another person. No one had ever sat down with us and said, this is the job of a missionary. It was like getting in a plane in the New Testament and getting off the plane in the Old Testament. It was like I'd flown into hell. We saw what, what darkness was. We'd seen darkness in Somalia, and all of a sudden now we saw darkness up front and personal in our family. But we, um, we had no idea what was coming. Out of the ashes of, of Somalia and after the death of our son, we were compelled to return to some of the toughest places uh, in the world for the gospel. There was something we needed to know. Is Jesus worth it? There begins uh, a pilgrimage of sitting at the feet of believers in persecution and ask them, teach us. believe that there is a free church and a suffering church there's just the church resurrected Christ himself. Nick and Ruth Ripkin and their teams served throughout the Horn of Africa within famine and war zones, resettling refugees providing famine relief, operating mobile medical clinics. Between 1991 and 1997, they were in Mogadishu, Somalia, when the events of the infamous movie Black Hawk Down occurred. Many of the Somali believers they knew when they, that they met when they arrived were not there when they left. During their time there, those believers suffered for their, their faith. Most were martyred, in fact, killed by Muslim family and friends. And then, as the trailer referred to, near the end of Ripken's, the Ripken's tenure among the Somalis, their 16-year-old son died of an asthma attack on Easter Sunday morning. I'm currently reading the book that this movie that comes out Tuesday is based on. And... The life of believers the world over that it describes is hard to reconcile with my life right here. Could it be 
that there's something other than the circumstances and the governments that makes our experience so very different here in America than that of our brothers and sisters around the world. Could it be that it's more about what's going on inside of us than what's going on around us? Nick Ripkin writes, We often asked followers of Jesus in persecution as they traveled around some 72, I think, countries now where believers are persecuted. They would ask them what they learned from Western workers. That would be Christians who come to help give aid, help minister to the persecuted, distribute food, set up medical clinics, whatever. And the believers, no matter the country, would typically look at one another and refuse to respond. They didn't want to answer the question. The question again, as we come in to help you, what is it that you've learned from Western workers, the helpers that have come to help you, who are oppressed, starving, being persecuted for your faith. But when we press them for an answer, Ripkin goes on, they would reply, Western workers teach us to be afraid. Western Christians teach us that it's possible to follow Jesus only in safe places. And such is what we as the American church communicate to the persecuted church the world over. Ripken concludes, this is not simply a mistake. This is sin. Did not Jesus say, remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In Luke 21, verse 16, he said, You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. Betrayal, persecution, death. In Acts chapter 14, after establishing new churches on his first missionary journey, journey, Paul returned some months later The text says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, these new believers, brand spanking new churches, encouraging them to continue in in the faith and listen to what went along with it. Listen to what was Christianity 101, church 101, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Right up front, it's going to happen. You follow Jesus, you'll be persecuted. Later, Paul would write to the Thessalonians, for whom he feared that their sufferings would, would, would get them off center in their faith. He wrote in first, uh, first Thessalonians 3, verse 3, you yourselves know that we have been destined for this, that is, for these afflictions that they found themselves in. You put all this together, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Paul, And what you come up with, you can't escape it in the New Testament, is very simply this. The Christian life is a call to risk and a call to suffer. 
when we flip over to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, the words there are so foreign to us. Listen to what it says. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. That kind of goes with our picked our, the image in 2 Corinthians 4 that we read earlier, the light, the, the gospel, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Listen to this. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. How? Joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property? How? Because, the verse continues, you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And so I want to ask you at the very beginning of this message this morning, are you that convinced of the truth of the gospel. We've been spending week after week in Galatians this morning. You can already tell we're going to take a a break from that. But the gospel, it's clear, isn't it? We are justified by faith alone in the work of Christ alone. And that gospel tells us that we have been made right with holy God forever. That we have been made sons and daughters of the living God. You are an heir of the creator of the universe through faith in Jesus Christ. Are you convinced enough of that truth that you know you have better and lasting possessions than anything that today could be stolen from you? Do you know that what you have in Jesus is worth far more than any earthly thing so that you could still have joy if you lost everything here on earth? I want to talk to you this morning about the joy that justifies gospel risk. Very specific thought this morning. The joy that justifies gospel risk, risk for the gospel, risk motivated by the gospel. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, kind of just kind of hopping around, so just hang on. And here's the take-home truth about that this morning. The joy of eternity with Jesus makes a life of gospel risk the only reasonable way to live. The joy of eternity with Jesus, as we'll see, first of all, that is mine, right? That I have in him makes a life of gospel risk the only way to believe. But secondly, the joy of eternity with Jesus for those who don't yet know about him. The prospect that they can know him too, that they can share in that joy makes a life of gospel risk for me the only reasonable way to live. That through me, through you, they might hear of him. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 16 to 18 to begin with. Hear the word of God. Paul says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, that is, all of our troubles. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, understand what Paul's not talking about in these verses. He's not referring to just your bad days, to my inconveniences and when things don't go according to the daytimer, they're just a little off at a couple points and I still go home happy to a happy family and so forth. He's not talking about those kind of days, those kind of troubles. He's really not talking about any kind of affliction that's, that's in the moment light at all. Paul wrote the words we just read to describe his perspective on suffering and persecution for his faith. Back in verses 8 through 11 of this passage, he talks honestly and yet hopefully about his suffering. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, the Apostle Paul, who gave us so much of our theology in the New Testament, our understanding of God and the cross and, and Jesus and the resurrection... He says he was perplexed. He suffered so, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Persecuted, but not abandoned. How many of us, if we were persecuted in the least, would feel as if God was nowhere to be found? And yet Paul says, I'm persecuted all the time, but I'm never abandoned by God. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. All those, What those last two verses mean is this. Through the sufferings of the Apostle Paul, people came to life in Jesus Christ. Through the death and the, the persecution, the suffering that he endured For Jesus, others came to know Jesus and in him live even eternally. And then over in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 27, he gets very specific about exactly how he suffered. He says, I have worked much harder. He's he's referring here to to false prophets in, in the area. And he says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. He's seen about every danger you could see, amen? I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. These are the sufferings that Paul knew. And these are what he would call light and momentary afflictions. There's nothing light about them. Some of them lasted for a long time. Some of them were repeat sufferings. In light of these things, in light of the extreme suffering Paul had endured and was enduring, how could he say, we do not lose heart? 
verse 16. Therefore, back in our text, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, we're getting beat to death, froze to death, starved to death, shipwrecked to death, you name it, stoned to death. I mean, we're, our, our body is suffering in real life, in real time. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Notice the first word of verse 16, the word therefore. It's always key, isn't it? It points us back to what's been said before verse 16, especially what's said in verse 15 where Paul says, all this is for your benefit. Talking about his sufferings. He just finished that that whole section about how he's hard-pressed but not crushed and so forth. All of this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Our suffering is doing something for you, our hearers, and for the glory of God. It's shining God's glory brightly to those who need to see and hear the gospel. And therefore, we do not lose heart heart. You see, for Paul, getting the treasure of the knowledge of God's glory in Jesus to people who don't yet have it, so that God will get glory in their thankfulness once they see the light of God's glory, it's worth all the suffering. That's his perspective on getting the gospel out no matter what it costs. And is that not the Great Commission? is not making disciples of all nations the Great Commission. Jesus just said, go get her done. He didn't say if it's convenient, if there's any trouble along the way. He said, make disciples of the nations. What he did say is, and lo, I am with you always. I'm with you when you have resistance. I'm with you when you're beaten. I'm with you when you're stoned. And Paul just believed he was with him. And he said, I've never been left alone. I've never been abandoned in the middle of my suffering. Jesus is doing just what he said he'll do. And he's never left my side. Back up to verses 5 through 7. We read it earlier. But I want you to see all this cleared out, spelled, spelled out clearly. Paul says, what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's the message that causes all the stir, that causes the persecution for which Paul suffered. We preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's all we are, is servants to the world so they can know Jesus. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of, the, of, the, of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure. What treasure? The treasure of the glory of God. The treasure of the gospel. The treasure of Jesus. We now have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Notice that. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see, that's why when the gospel goes into, into Muslim countries, as we were talking about recently, like Iran 20 years ago, 
and there's only 500 believers. The gospel goes into a country like that, and it spreads like wildfire. Why? Because it's an, it's an all-surpassing power. The truth of Jesus, accompanied by the spirit of Jesus, moves into a country so that today, the fastest-growing church in the world is in Iran with over a million believers. How? The all-surpassing power of God in the gospel, in the treasure that's in jars of clay, people just like me and you. There's nothing special about Iranians and Iranian Christians. They're just believers in Jesus like you, like me, and they just do what the Bible tells you and me to do and talk about Jesus. And the story, Paul said in Romans 1 verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God, the dunamis of God, the dynamite power of God unto salvation that can explode sin-hardened hearts, idol-blinded souls with the truth of the gospel and give light. You see, the jewel of Jesus, to use the pictures in this text, The glorious grace of God through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is carried to the world in jars of clay that are as part of God's plan, roughed up pretty good in their weakness and in their commonality so that the all-surpassing power of God's glory in Jesus will be clearly seen to be from God. And, and, And so it's very sure that he gets all the glory. Paul says, therefore, we do not lose heart. If all of that is happening in my life, I can be being stoned. Or it can be one of those times when he got the 40 lashes minus one. 40 killed you, 39 made you want to die. And in the middle of that, I can, I can still not lose heart. How? Because everything is going right according to plan in the, in the spread of the gospel, in the glory of God, so that the nations might know Jesus. And Paul would say, and all I am is a servant of God for you. That's what he said to the world. That's what he said in every city when he went. Because all of this is true. Paul is driven by the joy that justifies gospel risk. The joy of eternity with Jesus, both for himself and for those who will receive his message. The joy of eternity with Jesus makes a life of gospel risk the only reasonable way to live. Verse 17 of our text goes on, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That is the light and momentary troubles. What we're going to receive in eternity, what we're going to gain at the end of our race, far outweighs all of their light and momentary troubles now. Now, was Paul saying that, man, I, you know, I went, I went, I mean, I went through that that 39 lashes thing. That's not that big a deal. It doesn't hurt that bad. Is that what he's saying? I mean, stoning, hey, been there, done that, no sweat. You get over it in three weeks. It's not that bad. Is that what he was saying? No big deal to be shipwrecked. 
No big deal to be starving to death. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying to the Corinthian church and what the American church, what I need to hear, what you need to hear is this. The glory that awaits us makes all of that real and horrific suffering look light and momentary. Because it is a glory that is everlasting. And it is a glory. It is a pleasure. It is a joy. It is, it, it is satisfaction that we have never known. And it'll take all of eternity just to even begin to enjoy it. So, we fix our eyes, verse 18, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Had Paul ever seen the eternal glory that was going to be his. Now, he kind of got a glimpse of it. We do know that, right? He got a little glimpse. But he never saw it in its fullness. What could he see? Same thing you can see. Your neighbors, your co-workers. The government, the laws, the climate, the... You name it. Whatever it is for you. Whatever... whatever by comparison to what we've been talking about this morning, little opposition we might experience if we took a risk and said something about Jesus at points. How much of our lives are spent based on what we see, not on what we don't see? Moved by what we see, not what is unseen. Moved by what is temporary, not what is eternal. How much of your day, how much of my life, how much of my energy, my time, my money, my resources? Paul said, my eyes are fixed on what's unseen. Well, exactly what is this eternal glory that far outweighs them all? What is it that is unseen and eternal? What is it exactly, specifically, that makes all of this kind of suffering through which Paul went appear as light and momentary? I mean, we need to know that. Because until we fix our eyes on that, we will not be moved to take risk for the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5 Verses 5 through 8. It's a passage we use at funerals, and rightly so, but, but it's in our same context. This is just a few verses later after verse, verse 18. It's just about five verses later. Here's what he's talking about. He says, Now the one who fashioned us for this very purpose is God. That purpose that he's talking to in that passage, talking about that verse, is, is, is the desire to, to be... Uh, to, to, to lose this earthly body and gain a heavenly body, to be in eternity, in glory with God. Now, the one who fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is, come, what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We live this life here in relation to God by faith. We don't see him. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and would prefer 
to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What is the eternal weight of glory? What is the prize? What is the, the, the ultimate and everlasting joy that we've been given? It's being face-to-face at home with Jesus. Missy Carroll is there face-to-face with Jesus today. And I'm just going to tell you, it hurts to lose people, doesn't it? But I don't know about you, but more and more for me, Joe, Freddie, we were together at Carol's funeral this week. Joe was at another funeral for his uncle earlier in the week. More and more, the more funerals I go to and have part in, the more I long for heaven and I find myself jealous for the one who is already at home with Jesus. That's the eternal glory. Being with Jesus forever. So again, the joy of eternity with Jesus. Being at home with the Lord. That reality, both for ourselves and for those who receive our message, makes a life of gospel risk the only reasonable way to live. If that's our hope, then this life is not about anything but eternity ultimately. Amen? How can we not live in light of that eternity? How can the light of that glory not shine back into our life here in time and show us what really matters? Show us what our priorities must be. Show us that nothing else matters except that I live as a servant of God for your sake, for the sake of the nations, that they might know Jesus, that they might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ because it is coming. Piper writes in a little book called Risk is Right. It's worth the, worth the time to check it out. 60, 64 pages. If our single, all-embracing passion is to make much of Christ in life and death, let's just stop right there. If it ain't, it ought to be. Right? If our single, all-embracing passion is to make much of Christ in life and death, and it should be, and if the life that magnifies him most is the life of costly love, then life is risk, and risk is right. And to run from it is to waste your life. There is sometimes a subtle selfishness behind our avoidance of risk-taking. There is a hypocrisy that lets us take risks every day for ourselves, but paralyzes us from taking risks for others on the Calvary Road of love. We are deluded and think that such risk may jeopardize a security that in fact does not even exist. It is right to seek to make much of Christ by taking the risks of love. You know, you and I will take a risk for a thrill all day long, won't we? Hello? I mean, you'll risk 
not having enough money later in the month? If you can eat at the Cheesecake Factory, ask me how I know. (laughs) You'll risk, (laughs) in my aging heart, the possibility possibility of a cardiac arrest just to go up in a parasail with your wife because she wants to do it. You risk all kind of things. Got up there, it was great. Once we were up, I was good. It's just the trip up that got me. Whew. You make your list. You see, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's false to say that we live in any kind of security and that it's only Jesus that calls us out into danger and so forth. And so you, you risk stuff all the time. And here's the deal, you don't know. I mean, I mean, somebody could walk in right now and blow us all away. You could, you, could, you could get hit head on on the way home today. Your whole life is risk. You're not playing it safe. You're playing it selfish. I'm not hiding from any possible contingency by not sacrificing myself for Jesus. I'm being selfish. It is right to seek to make much of Christ by taking the risk of love, and yet I fear that much of my life is wasted in taking risk only for my own pleasure in this life. A few questions for you to help bring it home. Does it make sense to live on less than you make, to give even sacrificially? And I mean, that, that, what that means is so that it hurts. To prioritize your schedule and your finances around the great commission and the loving service of other more needy people than you. Does that even make sense? How do you justify such behavior as that in our world? Does it make sense to have to be pushed on a muddy road in two feet of water on a Saturday night by four Haitians just so you can get to an orphanage where there's about 20 kids and show and tell them the love of Jesus? How do you justify such behavior as that? David MacArthur did that last night. He's there, he's safe. Does it make sense? Retirees? Does it make sense to barely get settled in your retirement home and suddenly answer a call to go for eight months to teach Muslim children in the West Bank of Israel while Hamas has just this week taken control of the general area? How do you justify that kind of thinking? Tomorrow morning, Frank and Sheila Miller leave for that assignment. How do you justify that? The joy of eternity with Jesus, both for ourselves and for those who will receive our message, makes a life of gospel risk the only reasonable way to live. Or else we waste our life. Romans 8, 35, again, written by the Apostle Paul. Don't, don't, don't forget that. Written by a man who went through the list of sufferings that we read about earlier. Keep those in mind as I read through this passage. 
This was not written by some, you know, priest in an ivory tower somewhere, untouched by suffering. This was written by Paul. And he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He's not saying in that question, whose obvious answer is no. He's not saying those things weren't going to happen to him. He's not saying, hey, if you follow Jesus, you don't have to worry about any of this trouble, any of these sufferings like this. He's saying, I've been through everything in the list I just gave you, and I'm telling you, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We have to be persecuted so you can know Jesus. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's the way the world sees us, just like dumb sheep headed to the slaughter, but we're right where God put us so the world can see the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, here's the real question if you understand the love of God in Christ. Does it make sense? to spend our lives chasing the American dream, spending a huge percentage of our time and resources on leisure and sports and houses and cars and clothes and 401Ks so that we can then retire and burn away our final years and an even greater self-indulgence called retirement. Y'all all right? When you find retirement in the Scriptures for the Christian... When you find the place that says you can just sit down and quit serving the great commission and living the great commandment, let me know. I'm of the conviction that one of the greatest untapped pools of missionary power in the church in America are over whenever you retire. And I'm convinced that God has a calling for you. Maybe the biggest of your whole life. Does it make sense to live like this? Not if the gospel is true. Not if there is a treasure whose name is Jesus. Not if there is a world of souls that do not know him. And not if we have been called to tell the world the truth of Jesus. And I'm pretty sure Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's why Paul wrote Romans 12.1. After he wrote Romans 8 about the love of Christ. Romans 12.1, Paul says, Therefore, after these 11 chapters about my grace, about God's grace about the mercies of God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy that I just explained at great length, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to offer your bodies, what? As a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. Some of your translations say reasonable worship. 
when you look at the mercy of God in Christ to crawl up on the altar of daily sacrifice before holy God and say, take all that I am to get that message out. It's the only thing that makes sense. If you and I grasp even this much the message of Galatians, the free and radical grace of God for the world, then to live out Romans 12.1 is the only thing that makes sense. The joy of eternity with Jesus both for ourselves and for those who will receive our message, makes a life of gospel risk the only reasonable way to live. I don't know what it means for you. I don't know what this message means for you. But you know. How do I know that? Because the Holy Spirit lives in me and he lives in you, and he's already telling me what it means for me. So that means he's speaking to you and telling you what it means to you, Christian brother, Christian sister. Here's what we can't do. can't ignore it we can and we can waste our lives we can look like everybody around us that doesn't name the name of Christ that has no other God but their own belly their own appetites their own desires we can live just like them and we can waste our lives and the blood of souls all around us will be on our hands but how How? How can we have this treasure in in here? Jesus lives right here. How can we have the all-surpassing power of God in the gospel and not completely reevaluate our lives and reorder and reprioritize our thinking, our spending, our, our schedules? How? we come to the Lord's table today we come to celebrate this treasure our salvation full and free in Jesus Christ we come to celebrate our unity here in that salvation we come to celebrate our unity with the church all across the world. There is no free church and persecuted church. Nick Ripken said, there is just the church. And this morning as we commune here together as the body of Christ and and we eat Jesus' flesh and, and drink his blood symbolically through these elements, we commune with those who to this morning are suffering for Jesus, those who are dying for Jesus. How is it that we think we're any different You see, I'm convinced that part of the reason we don't suffer more here is because we're not bold enough to take risks. We back away from the slightest tremor that could even come close to being opposition or persecution or suffering or mockery or intimidation or any of those things. Because we're free. Our freedoms have lulled us to sleep as the body of Christ so that our impact in this nation is virtually nil. As millions go to hell all around us. As they live hopeless lives. So let God examine your heart as we prepare our hearts for this 
table to commune together. I'll ask the deacons to join me at the front as we bow our heads in prayer.